Well, good morning, church. If you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Mark uh, chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. As always, if you don't have a Bible or forgot your Bible, always feel free to grab one out in the lobby or back in the back. You can grab one of those, but we'd love to have, uh, have you have the Word in front of you this morning. Well, it was the year A.D. 155, and persecution was sweeping across the Roman Empire. And in the city of Smyrna, an order had been put out that the bishop of Smyrna named Polycarp, an order was made to have him arrested and brought to the public arena for execution. Smyrna was a city in modern-day Turkey, and it was there that Polycarp had been installed uh, in church leadership by some of the original apostles. It's been thought that Polycarp was discipled by by the apostle John, which is not a bad city group leader to have, not a bad guy to disciple you, right? One of the apostles, the Apostle John. And Polycarp was arrested and he was brought to the public arena with thousands of spectators screaming for his blood. And you can imagine the stadium shaking and rocking and people cheering and jeering for for Polycarp's blood merely because he was a follower of Jesus. And the governor of the, the province, he silenced the crowd and he looked at Polycarp and he said, curse the Christ and live. Curse the Christ and live. And the crowd went silent, waiting for an answer. And the old man, Polycarp, he answered, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How dare I blaspheme the name of my king and lord? And so soldiers immediately grabbed him and went to nail him to a stake to then burn him alive. And Polycarp stopped them and he said, Leave me as I am, for he who grants me to endure the fire will enable me also to remain in the fire unmoved. And with that, Polycarp became a Christian martyr. The word martyr has often been used for Christians who have been killed for following Jesus. But the word martyr, it comes from the original Greek word that means one who bears testimony to faith. Or literally a witness. A witness. And those certainly who are killed for their faith, their willingness to die for Jesus, their king, is the ultimate witness someone can give to the world, right? Willing to give up their life. But it's not just in our deaths that we are called to be martyrs or witnesses, but also in our life we are called to be martyrs and witnesses. And Jesus, after his death and resurrection, he gathers with his disciples, and his disciples are asking him if now is the time that the kingdom is going to be restored and fully realized and established. And he tells them, hey, the timing of things is not for you to know. But he says in Acts 1, verse 8, he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses or my martyrs in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
This morning, as we're kind of getting warmed up, I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, Neighbor, you are called to be a witness. All of us, all of us as followers of Jesus, whether we end up being killed for our faith or we end up living to a hundred and passing away in our sleep, we are called to be martyrs. We are called to be witnesses. And it was about six or seven years ago that I was working in the hospital, and I vividly remember this day because the moment still haunts me. And I was still fairly new at the job, still getting to know people there at the hospital, and someone came up to me and asked me, hey, why are you so happy and calm all the time? Which they obviously didn't really know me, because Britt could testify that I am not always happy and calm all the time, especially in that first year of working at the hospital. But still, nonetheless, they had noticed something different about my demeanor. They had noticed something different with how I treated people and interacted with people. And in my head, I knew, hey, this was the perfect opportunity to share about Jesus. Right? I mean, I could have said, man, here was an opportunity. I could have said, man, I'm, I am joyful because Jesus loves me and he's saved me and he's, he's, he's recreated me and I'm a new person. I could have said that, man, Jesus has given me just a joy and a peace knowing that I'm accepted and loved and, and it's an unconditional love. I could have kept it even just real simple and just said, man, God is good. Like, I'm so joyful and happy because God is good. Even when times are tough, even when in the hospital bloody foots abound. Seth, bloody foot? He's still good. He's still good. Like, even then, like, God is good, right? God is good. But I didn't say any of that. And I mean, here was an opportunity. And if you're like me, uh, and you aren't naturally, like I, I'm not naturally good at going up to people and just starting conversations about Jesus. Now, it's gotten a little easier as I've, I've, as I've become a pastor, uh, because when people ask me, oh, what do you do? And I say, I'm a pastor. Uh, usually there's two responses. One is, oh, okay, and then they're gone, right? And so it's just the conversation's over. Uh, but then the other response is, oh, you're a pastor, and they spill their guts, right? And just like, yeah, you know, conviction, all this stuff's going on. I haven't been to church in a while, and I'm like, yeah, that's okay. Like, you know, and, and so, uh, so now it's a little bit more natural for me to have conversations about Jesus. But many of you, you're like me. Like, I just don't naturally go up and just start talking to people about Jesus. And so here's an opportunity, right? Someone's coming to me and asking me what's different about me. This is what you hope and pray for. This is the lob that is ready for you to, you know, hit a home run, right? This is it. And here was an opportunity. And I, like a coward, I chickened out. Thoughts started flooding in my mind, like, well, what if me sharing about Jesus hurts any future friendship I could have with this person? Or what if me sharing about Jesus affects my reputation and the way people interact with me? What if me sharing about Jesus makes this moment awkward, right? That's always a possibility. This could get awkward. I was fearful. And it's not even like I had to fear being burned at the stake like Polycarp did, right? But I, was fear, I feared that maybe that relationship might get burned or that my reputation might get burned. Or that my comfort in that moment might get burned. 
And so I'm ashamed to say I totally gave a cop-out answer. Something like, I'm just so happy to work with such a great group of people. Some, you know, garbage like that that no one believed, right? I just copped out. I got fearful. And I'm sure many of you have had similar experiences at some point in your life where the opportunity presented itself to you to be a witness for Christ, to share about the goodness and the glory of Jesus, but you became fearful and you kept quiet. You were called to the witness stand to proclaim truth and you were silent. But I've got good news to share for all of us faltering witnesses this morning as we look at God's word. Because here in Mark 14, we are going to see some false witnesses. We're going to see a faltering witness, but then we're going to see a faithful witness. And we will see how faltering witnesses can be made and transformed into faithful witnesses. So let's pray and then we will jump in. Father God, I thank you for this group of people. Lord, I thank you for their love for you and for one another, their love for this, this city and their neighbors and their coworkers. God, as we come before your word, we do not come before it lightly. And Lord, we come to your word expectantly that you will do a great work through the preaching and the receiving of your word. And so we ask, God, that we would enjoy your presence this, mor this morning, in this moment, as your word goes forth. May it bring life to our souls. May it awaken people to faith. And may it stir up a love in us that would spill over onto our neighbors and our coworkers and our classmates and our world. We ask that you would do a great work we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Mark 14, we're going to be starting in verse 53. You remember Jesus, what we talked about last week, has just been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so we're picking up things in Mark 14, verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Okay, so they, they lead Jesus, right, to Caiaphas, the high priest. The high priest is the Israelites. It's like their supreme uh, religious leader. They've gathered some members of the Sanhedrin, remember, which is kind of like the highest ruling court of the Jewish people. Although, remember, they still had to be subordinate to Rome at this point, okay? But Jesus gets brought before the highest ranking Jewish officials, and Peter is, is following at a distance. This, this Peter who said he would never deny Jesus. This Peter who said he'd even be ready to die uh, for, for Jesus. This Peter who, had, who Jesus had just told him to pray in the garden three times. And three times he found Peter. Uh, Peter was asleep. This Peter who then tried to take matters into his own hands by cutting off one of the high priest's servant's ears. That Peter is following at a distance, and they go to the high priest's house, which houses of important people in that time and place, they usually had a courtyard in the middle where uh, servants and soldiers could gather by a fire on the colder months. 
So we'll come back to Peter in a second, but look at verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Okay, here is Jesus on trial. Now, right from the outset, we see this is not going to be a fair trial. I mean, they were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Like, they already knew what they wanted the punishment to be, and so they had to find some evidence to support some verdict that would then fit the punishment they wanted. And so they scrounged up some false witnesses, but even these witnesses, their testimonies, they didn't agree, they didn't line up, they didn't make sense. And according to their laws that God had put into place back in Deuteronomy with Moses, they had to have two or three witnesses that agreed that their testimonies agreed if they were going to put someone to death. And so they are striking out so far. These witnesses are not agreeing. But this, this whole trial is really an illegal trial because according to Jewish law, a Jewish trial could not be conducted at night. And right now this is in the middle of the night. Also, their law said that they couldn't have a trial on a, on a Sabbath or a feast day. And remember, this is, this is the Passover. And you couldn't be on the eve of a Sabbath or on the eve of a feast day. And so this was in violation of that as well. Look back at verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What, it, uh, what is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. This whole trial is really ironic. The Sanhedrin is trying to judge Jesus for breaking the law. When in actuality, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, and he will one day judge the Sanhedrin who is actually breaking the law. The Sanhedrin mocks Jesus and tells him to prophesy, and in actuality, their mocking and their beating and their eventual crucifixion is actually fulfilling prophecy. It's an ironic situation. And the high priest stands up after they couldn't find a reason to condemn Jesus of anything deserving death. He stands up and he asks Jesus, have you no answer to make? And Jesus remained silent. And then he asks him, are you the Christ? The son of the blessed, the son of God. And Jesus, remember, all throughout the book of Mark, he's, been, he's instructed people to keep his true identity a secret. 
All right? There's been this secrecy about who he is and what he, is, he has been sent here to earth to do. He rebuked demons and told them to be silent because they knew who he was. Right? They knew he was the Son of God. They knew he was the Christ. He, Jesus, all throughout Mark, he has healed people, and he's, he's told them not to go tell anyone. There's been this secrecy right, about who he is and what his mission was. And it, that's been the case all throughout Mark because it wasn't his time yet to be offered up as a sacrifice for sins. But Jesus knows that now is the time. The time for secrecy is over, and the time to be a witness is at hand. And when asked if he is the Christ, he answers with, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Again, here we see the same kind of apocalyptic literature that we saw in chapter 13. This imagery of him coming on the clouds is to be understood not in a literal sense of him coming on water vapor, but it was imagery of glory and of ascending to the throne. It's again Jesus referring to himself as the Son of Man in Daniel 7 who ascends in glory to the throne and is given all authority in heaven and on earth. And upon hearing this, the priest knows what this means. He knows what Jesus is claiming. He tears his garments and he calls what Jesus said blasphemy without considering if what he said was actually true. And then they all condemn him as deserving death But since they are under Roman authority, they don't have the power in and of themselves to kill Jesus. But the Jewish leaders all condemn him deserving death. And they will later, we'll see next week, take him to the Romans to see if the Romans will condemn him as well. But Jesus, when when asked if he is the Christ, the Son of God, he says, I am. Now don't miss this. Don't miss this, okay? Put yourself in the story of God's people. Ever since the Garden of Eden, when God promised that there would be a future offspring of Adam and Eve that would crush the head of the serpent, ever since then, the people of God had been longing for the Messiah or the Christ or the Rescuer, the Snake Crusher, the one that was going to come and disarm and defeat the enemy and redeem a people and restore the world. And they had been longing for this Christ to come. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see God send witnesses to prepare the way for the coming Savior. He sent prophets to the people. He sent priests to the people. He sent kings to the people. The prophets were the witnesses that testified to the ways of God and the words of God. The priests were the witnesses that testified to how sinful humanity and a holy God needed a mediator, needed an intercessor between them to restore a right relationship. And the kings were the witnesses that testified to God's ruling authority and sovereignty in the world. And now, here he is in Mark 14. Here he is, the one we've been waiting for. The one that creation has been groaning for. This is God's star witness. This is the one and only. This is the true prophet, priest, and king. The one who will truly testify to the ways and words of God. 
the one who himself will be the mediator and intercessor between God and humanity, and the one who himself will ascend to the throne and be given all authority in heaven and on earth. And so the high priest asks the real high priest, are you the Christ? And he says, I am. I am. This is the one we've been waiting for, the one we've been longing for. And some of you, even this morning, are battling in your own mind and in your own heart if Jesus really is the hero and the Savior that you have been longing for. If he's the one who can restore you and heal you. And Jesus says, I am. Some of you are wondering if this Jesus is the one that can save you from all you've done in your past. And if he's, if he's the one in this world of lies and false witnesses and fake news, you're wondering if he's the one that can be truly trusted because all he says and does is true. And Jesus says, I am. And some of you, you're, you are weary and tired from trying to be the ultimate ruling authority in your life. You thought being free from all authority would bring you peace and liberation, and instead it's only brought you anxiety and loneliness. Could this Jesus be the king that your soul longs for? Could he be the authority that you've been longing for that would bring you peace? And Jesus says, I am. I am. And this morning, if you've never believed, if you've never trusted, if you've never rested in that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Savior of the world, I would encourage you just even now in the quietness of your own heart to confess and repent of your sin, the ways that you've turned from the desires of God and that you would trust and rest that Jesus is your Savior. And come talk to one of us. We'd love to pray with you and talk through that. Well, not only was Jesus on trial, not only was Jesus on trial, but our boy Peter is sort of on trial in a way as well. So let's check back in with Peter and see how he's doing. Look back at Mark 14, verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard... One of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. We've seen the faithful witness stand trial, and now we look at the faltering witness. But before we get too down on Peter, let's give him some props. 
I mean, he has at least followed Jesus, even if it's from a distance, he's at least followed Jesus to the high priest's house, which the other disciples, except for John, are nowhere to be seen. But Peter is hanging out, and he's, even though he's keeping a distance, he's trying to go unnoticed, he's hanging out at the high priest's house. And you can't really blame him for trying to keep a low profile at the high priest's house. Let's remember, he just cut off one of the high priest's servant's ears, right? That could be a little awkward to run into the guy that you just, you know, tried to knife out in the garden, right? So he's, he's trying to keep a low profile. He's kind of, you know, trying to stay in the shadows, but he's by the fire, and, and the servant girl is noticing who he was. And the servant girl sees him and says, hey, you were with Jesus. Peter's given an opportunity to be a witness, to claim Christ, and he fails. He denies Jesus. And a second time, the servant girl sees him, and this time with some bystanders around, and says, hey, you are one of his followers, aren't you? And again, he denies it. And then a third time, and the third time he really, he really ups his game. He kind of invokes a curse on himself, starts to swear, says, I do not know this man of whom you speak. The rooster crows, and Peter remembers Jesus' words, and he breaks down and he weeps. This man who had been so proud and, and just prideful, right, about, I will never deny you, right? Last week, he's like, even if all these, like all these other disciples, even if they fall away, I will not fall away. And here we see he is humbled. He is humbled. He breaks down and he weeps. Peter has not had a great night up until this point, okay? I mean, three times in the garden, Jesus instructed him to pray, and three times he fell asleep. Here now, three times he's given an opportunity to claim to be a follower of Jesus, and three times he denies us. And I, I think many of us can relate to Peter to some degree, right? I mean, we desire to be a courageous, faithful witness for Christ. But if we could be honest, we are often cowards. We often follow Jesus from a distance. We often, when given an opportunity to testify, we often become silent. And this usually happens when we either uh, believe the lies we tell ourselves or when we start believing the lies that the enemy is whispering to us. And so if you, if you take notes at all, or if you've got a pen and you want to write something down, write this down, okay? We falter in our witness when we listen to false witnesses more than we listen to the faithful witness. I'll, say, I'll read it again. We falter in our witness when we listen to false witnesses more than we listen to the faithful witness. The, the lies of the false witnesses around us can come from either the enemy, they can come from others, and sometimes they can even come from ourselves. Our, our enemy, let me remind you, uh, the Bible calls our enemy the accuser. And he loves to come and bring accusations against the people of God. In Revelation 12, verse 10, we'll have this up on the screen and it says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers 
has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Our enemy is an accuser of God's people. And let me, let me give you guys some insight into the internal struggle that, that I have usually before I have an opportunity to witness to you on Sunday mornings or before I have an opportunity to share about Jesus out in the community. And I want you guys to know this for a couple of reasons. One is I want you to know how to pray for me as I'm preparing to preach. And I want you to know this because I think you can relate to this when you have opportunities to share about Jesus as well. But oftentimes on Saturday nights and Sunday mornings, the accuser comes and throws my past sins and failures in my face and whispers lies to me like, you're not worthy to proclaim these words to this people. Whispers lies, like if they really knew all you've done, if they really knew all you thought, there's no way they would let you preach on Sunday. And he brings up my past failures and tells me that I should just keep quiet. Like it would just be better for my family and my own personal health and well-being if I just kept quiet and let someone else preach to this people and someone else preach to this city. That if I would just step aside and just keep my mouth shut, then maybe someone else more qualified or with a better resume could come in and lead and preach. And then not only just from the enemy, then, then even my own thoughts just start to kind of spiral out of control. It's not all the enemy, right? It's even my own thoughts that just start to make me question myself, question my faith. They, they make me cowardly and want to just keep quiet about all this Jesus stuff. And so pray for me, church. Pray for me as I prepare to preach Spurgeon was once asked what his secret to preaching was, like what's the secret sauce, like why is your preaching so effective and so fruitful, and he would often say, the secret is, my people pray for me, my people pray for me. But many of you, isn't, isn't this also the case, when you have an opportunity to be a, a faithful witness of Jesus? When you have an opportunity to share of his goodness and grace, isn't it the case that something comes into your head and whispers to you, you can't share the gospel? You don't know enough theology to share the gospel. What if they ask questions? You don't know how to answer all their questions. You can't share the gospel. You're going to offend somebody. You don't want to make things awkward. Leave, leave that work for the pastor. Leave that work for the professional. Who, who are you to tell anyone they need Jesus? Your life is a wreck. And we, we hear these lies. We listen to these lies. And then we become like cowards. And we falter in our witness when we listen to false witnesses instead of listening to the faithful witness, Jesus Christ. Revelation uh, chapter 1 
verse uh, 4 and 5, Jesus Christ is referred to as the faithful witness. Uh, in, in Revelation 1, verse 4, John to the seven churches, kind of the opening of, of the book, right? John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and was and is to come and from the seven spirits who are before the throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. That's the faithful witness. Jesus is the faithful witness. But, but what do we do? Instead of listening to Jesus, the faithful witness, we listen to ourselves. We listen to others. We listen to the enemy. We listen to all these false witnesses. And, 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 we, and we, we, we listen to the lies that we tell ourselves, right? And listen, ourselves, we are, we are prone to wander. Ourselves, we are prone to stumble. We are prone to fall in our witness. We are prone to keep quiet about the excellencies of Christ. And the enemy would want it no other way. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he, want, he once wrote this. He said, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Like instead of listening to the lies of the enemy, instead of listening to the lies that you're telling yourself, instead of listening to these lies, why don't you start witnessing to yourself? Because if the gospel is ever going to effectively uh, go out, it must first go in, right? You must remind it to yourself. You must preach it to yourself over and over again. And so church, when the accuser comes, tell yourself the truth of Scripture. Preach to yourself verses like Romans 8.34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You see, God's word tells us that Jesus is our great high priest. And as our great high priest, he is interceding for us with God. He's, he's praying for us. Yes, the accuser will come into the courtroom, but his accusations will not hold any ground because our great high priest has offered up himself as a sacrifice for our sins. Our sins have been forgiven. Christ's righteousness has now been given to us, and Jesus is now mediating and interceding on our behalf. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 24 and 25 it says, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him. He always lives to make intercession for them. So 
here's the question. How does Peter go from denying Jesus in front of a servant girl to proclaiming Jesus on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people get saved? Like, like what happened there? Did he go to a class, right? Did he like take this like 12 steps to man up, you know, about your faith class or something like that? We're thinking of developing something like that here. Uh, was there something, did he read a book, right? What, what happened? Like what happened there? What was the difference? Well, you see, one of the roles of the high priest was not only to make sacrifices for sin on behalf of the people, but it was also to offer up intercessory prayers on their behalf. And look what Jesus tells Simon, Simon Peter in Luke 22. We'll have it up on the screen. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when, not if, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus was praying for Peter. He knew he was going to send his spirit, the Holy Spirit, to dwell inside of Peter so that here you have a faithful witness interceding for him and praying for him, but you also have the faithful witness who's going to fill him with his own spirit. He says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to dwell inside of you. And therefore, not if you turn again, but when you have turned again, go strengthen your brothers as well. Church, Jesus always lives to make intercession for you. He says, son, and he says, daughter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Peter stumbled and he fell many times, but his faith did not fail. Because Jesus was praying for him. And Jesus was sending his spirit to dwell inside of him. So church, do not be discouraged by missed opportunities of the past to be a witness for Jesus. Jesus graciously gave Peter many more opportunities in the future. Jesus was praying for him. And in my life, I have found the same thing to be true. So a few years later, after the, the incident in the hospital where I just totally you know, gave a cop-out answer, a few years later, I actually did have the opportunity to share the gospel. And God, by the grace of God, he gave me the courage and the power to, to proclaim of his goodness. And then he gave me more opportunities as I, as I stepped out of the hospital and, and told people I was, you know, leaving for ministry. I was called to plant a church. And that was, that was very confusing for some of my coworkers that I would, you know, take a different job that paid uh, a lot less and just was a different field. And how does this all work? And God gave me opportunity after opportunity to share with them what he was doing and how he was leading me. And, so, and even now, some of them listen to these sermons. 
as they work late night shifts in the ER or as they're, they're, they're driving to work, they're listening to these sermons and hearing about the goodness and the grace of God. And so, uh, guys, if you are listening to this, know that I love you and I miss you. Know that God is good and that there is no better life than following after Jesus. When lies start coming into your head and you find your courage failing you, if you are in Christ, you need to start witnessing to yourself. You need to start reminding yourself that in Christ you are loved and accepted. That in Christ you are no longer an orphan or a slave to sin, but you are now a child of God. You are a son or daughter of the King. You remind yourself that the great I am, the faithful and the true, has shed his blood for your sins. He's wiped your sin-stained heart clean, and he has clothed you in his righteousness. He has filled you with his spirit, and he is right now making intercessory prayer for you. That should embolden you. That should give you courage. So, some of you are, are uh, I, would, I, I think intercessory prayer is a, is, a, is a special and a unique gift of the Holy Spirit that he does gift to, to some people, right? I wasn't planning on getting into spiritual gifts, uh, but, but let's just go there for a second, all right? I would say intercessory prayer where someone just is gifted in a way that they love to make prayers for other people. I think that is a special gift. For those that are gifted in that way, it comes naturally, right? Like they have no problem just spending hours of praying for people. Now, we're all called to pray for one another, but if it's not our spiritual gift, it sort of has to be a discipline for us, right? We kind of have to like force ourselves to pray for other people. So my mom, who's not here today, right? Uh, Mom, I love you. She actually, she's probably the one person that does listen. Uh, Mom, uh, uh, we miss you and we're praying for you to get better. Um, But my mom, I would say, is gifted with intercessory prayer. Like if you, if you have a prayer request and you tell the, the, the average Christian, hey, I need prayer, I would, I don't want to make up stats. Some of them will actually pray for you and some of them will not. But if you tell my mom, she will pray like hours for you. And it just, it just comes that she can't understand why other people don't do this, right? So I, I'm using this example is because I'm actually, because mom's not here, I know she is right now praying for me. And that gives me a boldness and a courage to proclaim the excellencies of Christ and to care less about my inadequacies. It it emboldens me to know that someone is interceding on my behalf. And she is is a human being. How much more should it embolden us and give us a courage to know that Jesus the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the Christ, the Messiah, the snake crusher. He is praying for us. He's interceding for us right now. You preach that to yourself when an opportunity to witness comes about and you will see cowards become courageous. You will see faltering witnesses transform into faithful witnesses. 
Church, the spirit of the faithful witness now lives inside of us. And not only that, but Jesus is praying for us. He's interceding for us right now. And church, I believe as we proclaim that truth to ourselves, it will overflow. We will overflow with the, with the goodness and the grace and the love of Jesus and that we will be compelled out of here. We will be launched out of here into our neighborhoods and into our schools and into our city and into our county and into our world. I believe that we will be a sending church. This church is going to be a sending church. We will be ascending church as we continue to have college students who are with us during their college years, and then they are sent out to take the good news of Jesus to wherever God would send them. We'll be ascending church as we have military families come here and are stationed here for a time, and then they take the good news of Jesus out to wherever God would send them next. We will be ascending church as all of our young kids grow up to be young men and women who love Jesus, and they will be sent out to take the good news of Jesus to wherever God would send them. We'll be ascending church as people who approach retirement don't just view retirement as a chance to hit the cruise control and check out, but they see retirement as an opportunity to press forward with the mission of God in the world and to be sent out to wherever God would send them. Turn to your neighbor and say, neighbor, we're going to be ascending church. Praise God. There was, a, there was an evangelist in the 1800s named Brownlow North, which is a pretty legit name. If we're picking rapper names, I'd call dibs on that one, Brownlow North. Uh, he was a preacher and he was an evangelist, but in his youth, he had lived a pretty wild life. And one Sunday, he was going to preach in Aberdeen, Scotland, and before he entered the pulpit, a letter was handed to him. Which, let me give you a little insight as to why pastors hide and avoid people before they preach, is because they always get hit with something big right before they're about to preach. And before he entered the pulpit, a letter was handed to him, and the writer of the letter reminded Brownlow of a past shameful incident in his life before he became a Christian and stated if he dared to preach that this person would rise up in the church and publicly proclaim what he had once done. I mean, talk about the accuser coming right before an opportunity to witness, right? But what Brownlow North did is interesting. What he did was he took the letter into the pulpit, and he read it to the congregation, and he told them it was perfectly true. And then he told them how through Christ he had been forgiven how through Christ he had been enabled and freed by Jesus to put the past behind him, and how through Christ he was a new creation. And he used his past shame as a magnet to draw people to Christ. And isn't that what Peter's life did as well? Isn't that what you and I because of the gospel, are free to do with our past failings as well. Peter failed Jesus. He denied Jesus, and yet Jesus still loved him and forgave him and died for him and filled him and is praying for him. 
And Jesus can do the same for you and for me. And I'll close with this. Seth, you can go ahead and come on up. I'll close with this. The passage of Scripture from Revelation 12, verses 10. I only read verse 10 at the beginning. I'm going to read verse 11 for you as well. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Church, we have an accuser. But look at verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Can we maybe as a church, uh, uh, Andrea, do you mind going back? Can, can we read verse 11? Is there a number? Okay. You see verse 11? Let's read that together. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Fellow faltering witnesses, may we worship and listen to the faithful witness of Jesus. And may we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, be witnesses in Franklin and in Johnson County and to the ends of the earth.